If you want to open your Bible to John chapter 7. Uh, today is uh, Bayou City Fellowship's 8th birthday. Uh, so... Anyway, so happy birthday. If you uh, brought me a present, you can just set it outside uh, there in the lobby. That's where I'm collecting them. Um, no, but it was, uh, it was eight years ago today that we had our first official Sunday, the, the first Sunday after Labor Day, uh, September 11th, 2011. So that's a pretty easy uh, day to remember. And, um, you know, when my wife and I felt like, man, God is stirring something in us and... Uh, um, you know, you just start trying to act like a magnet because you know you can't do it alone. And so you just say things out loud and God brings you people. And so if you were there on our first Sunday, would you raise your hand to see anybody? A few people there. A few people here. Yeah. Awesome. Um, we had no idea if there would be a second Sunday. Uh, when we started the church eight years ago, uh, the first Sunday was really kind of the finish line. Um, and, and we definitely didn't think that we would have three churches meeting eight years later. And so I just want to thank these pioneers uh, for being there on the first Sunday. So if you wouldn't mind. Uh, so anyway, thank you to you guys for showing up. And it worked out good for you because you wouldn't be married uh, if... Uh, Derek and Lisa met at church, so I'm taking full credit for uh, their happy and thriving marriage. Anyway, happy birthday. Um, here at Bayou City, we like to use personal plural pronouns. So if you are still saying about the church, they, uh, them, uh, those people, uh, then we want you to get more connected than that. We would like you ideally to move to the place where you are saying we and us. And so if you're not quite there yet, even if you've been coming uh, for uh, six months or so, and you're not saying we and us, I'd love for you to get a little bit more connected. And we have a great opportunity uh, because community groups have just started. They're meeting all over Tomball, lots of different nights of the week. Uh, and so surely there is one that would fit with your uh, schedule. So please jump in so that you can make the transition from that's the church that I go to, that, uh, to uh, that is my church and we and us. So that would be the goal. John chapter 7, we're actually going to start in verse 37 and read through verse 52. Um, I grew up in southwest Missouri and every spring there was a national holiday that only people in Missouri celebrated. It was the opening day of the St. Louis Cardinals baseball season. Now I know we're all Astros fans, but I didn't know anything about the Astros when I was growing up in Missouri except for that the Cardinals uh, dominated them uh, every season. Uh, but so now I'm an Astros fan. Don't worry about it. I don't need any emails or anything. But back then, everything in Southwest Missouri was St. Louis Cardinals. And everybody celebrated. If you were one of the lucky few who could afford or had the time to actually go to Bush Stadium on opening day, I, I mean, that was the end-all, be-all. Uh, regular people couldn't do that, though. But everybody would wear their St. Louis Cardinals gear. Everybody would turn on the radio. I mean, that sounds like an ancient phrase. And listen to uh, the, the broadcast of the game. Uh, everybody's mind was on St. Louis that day. And in John chapter 7, that essentially is what is happening. Only not, it's not a baseball game, it's a feast. And everybody's mind 
is on Jerusalem. Uh, everybody who was able to get to Jerusalem had tried to do that. And for seven days, they would go to the temple to worship God and thank him and celebrate this feast that they called the Feast of the Tabernacles. There were three feasts that every Israelite, if you were able, uh, would come to Jerusalem to celebrate. They called them the pilgrimage feasts. Uh, there was Passover in the spring. Uh, there was the Feast of Weeks uh, a little bit later in the spring. And then the one in the fall is the one that we're looking at in John chapter 7. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles. And there they thanked God for the harvest, that God had brought the rain, the crops had grown, uh, and those crops were either used for food to provide for his people, or they sold them to fund the economy. Either way, they were thanking God for the harvest and then asking him for next year's harvest. And so Jesus has gone down to this festival and he's been teaching in the temple uh, halfway through the festival and now it's going to be the last and greatest day of the feast and Jesus has been dividing people through his teaching. Everybody has an opinion and we're going to see that in our passage today. So we're focusing on verses 37 through 52, but I actually want to read it out of order if you don't mind. We're going to start with the people's reaction in verse 40, and then we'll go back to what he said that caused this reaction. Verse 40, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? So people all week at this festival as Jesus has been teaching in the temple. And the way that temple teaching worked was uh, you would just start teaching and people would come around and listen to you. You didn't really have to be sanctioned in any kind of way. There were people who lived uh, in the temple. They worked in the temple. And so obviously those teachers had a lot of credibility. But really anybody could start teaching. And then you knew how effective of a teacher you were based on how many people had come around to hear you. So if it's you and your grandma, uh, you're probably not that great. Uh, but Jesus attracted large crowds there in the temple. And so he's been teaching all week and people have been doing this really interesting thing with him. They've been saying on one hand, and then they'll say on the other hand. They'll say on the one hand, he looks like the Messiah, he acts like the Messiah, but on the other hand, we didn't know that the Messiah dot, dot, dot. So this is what they're doing here. On one hand, some say he's the prophet. And you'll notice in your Bible, if you look at it with me, it says the prophet, not a prophet, the prophet with a capital P. That comes from a little verse tucked into Deuteronomy where God had said to Moses, I'm going to raise up another prophet just like you who will lead my people Israel. And so people began to expect for this prophet to come. And then other people say, no, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the savior that God is going to use to deliver us and usher in the kingdom of God. So people are saying, well, on one hand, he looks like the prophet. People are saying, on the other hand, he's doing a lot of things that the Christ would do. But then they go back to the other hand and they say, well, he's from Galilee. And we've always expected that God's Savior would come from Jerusalem and Judea. That's the southern half of Israel. Um, see, generations before, God had disciplined his people and he had let two of their uh, the foreign powers come and, and really destroy Israel. Assyria came from the north and Babylon came from the south and they scattered the people and left Israel in shambles. Well, eventually everybody was allowed to, to come back home. Now, if you were a true Israelite with lots of faith, you believe that you were the unique and special people of God. That comes from the book of Genesis where God says to Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you and your descendants are going to be like stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. And so they believed that they were God's unique people. And if you were God's unique people, where would you want to go and live? As you were moving back, 
to your country. You would go live as the people of God in the city of God in Jerusalem. And that was in the southern half of Israel. And up north in Galilee, uh, it, it, was, it had lots of different kinds of people. It had Israelites, but it also had lots of Gentile people. And so over the generations, it's just naturally assumed that God's Savior would not come from a place where there were all kinds of mixed people and mixed religions. Uh, God's Savior would come from where it was pure and undefiled down south. So these people are saying, yeah, on one hand, Jesus is doing a lot of Messiah-like things. But on the other hand, we know that he's from Nazareth up in Galilee. And the, the Savior, the Messiah, is going to be of the line of David. And, and surely they're going to be born and come from the southern half of Israel, where David was from, Bethlehem and Jerusalem. See, they didn't know the Christmas story like we know it. They didn't know that Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem to have a census taken because the Roman Empire was taking a survey of its people. They didn't know that story because Mary and Joseph, they weren't from Bethlehem. They'd only spent a few days there and just happened to be that Jesus was born there. So they just assumed Jesus was born in Nazareth and not just from Nazareth. So they're like, on one hand, no, he can't be the Messiah because he's from Galilee. So verse 44, verse 43 says, thus the people were divided because of Jesus. And some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Verse 45, finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? Verse 46, no one has ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean you, he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. So the Pharisees and the rulers of uh, Israel, they did not like Jesus at all. I, I mean, imagine I would not like somebody who just walked up here and started preaching either. Even if what they were saying was true, I just wouldn't like them, right? So Jesus is doing this in the temple. That was for the religious rulers and leaders. And here Jesus is attracting these great crowds. And then he's saying things that uh, are odd and, and very bold. And so they've been trying to, to arrest him. So they send their guards to arrest Jesus, but they want to do it in secret. That's why... Uh, at the end of the Gospels, they find Judas to betray Jesus. And what does Judas betray? But Jesus' private location. Every day, the last week of Jesus' life, he's going into the temple in public. It wasn't that the religious leaders didn't know where to find him. They knew where to find him. It's that they didn't want to arrest him in public because he had great crowds around him. And not everybody in those crowds believed in him, but just the sheer number of people protected Jesus. The religious leaders also knew that they, didn't, they weren't totally justified in wanting him dead. It was more of kind of a personal vendetta. They said that it was to protect God's people, but really it, it was a lot personal. So they send their guards to arrest Jesus. They know where to find him. They're just looking for a private moment. And that's why Judas agrees to give them the location of where Jesus would often go to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane after he was with the crowds. So these guards are looking for a private moment to arrest Jesus, but they, they can't find one. And so they come back to the Pharisees and the religious leaders empty-handed and they're like what I mean we gave you one job to do what's your what's your deal and they're like well I don't know this guy this guy's pretty great actually and the Pharisees throw up their hands like he's deceived you too you guys have bought in to his teaching verse 48 has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him no, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. So the Pharisees throw up their hands and they say to these policemen who should have arrested Jesus, you guys are crazy. Why would you believe in him? Have any of us professionals believed in him? Any rulers, any Pharisees? No, the only people who believe in him is the commoners, the mob, they call him. 
And that mob doesn't know the law. You can feel the spiritual pride of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And that's something all of us need to be on guard about. The more we desire to grow in our faith, which is a great and very important and necessary thing, the more we want to, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and when we suffer, that our suffering would be with Christ. The more we desire that, we need to guard our rear so that it doesn't turn into spiritual pride. The first step of spiritual pride is bad theology. It's God has brought something to the table, and I also bring something to the table. And that combination is what has made me who I am. I have a part. God has a part. We're equal partners in how wonderful I am. (laughs) Step one, bad theology. Step two, comparison. Once we're taking credit for the kind of Christian we are, then we start holding ourselves up against other people. And isn't it amazing that we always find people who are worse than us to compare ourselves to? Why don't they serve the way I serve? Why don't they give the way that I give? Why don't they read the scripture the way that I read the scripture? Why don't they raise their kids the way that we're raising our kids? Why why don't they sacrifice in the way that that we've sacrificed? Why do they still do this when we have given up those simple-minded things? You start comparing yourself, and since you and I are giving ourselves half the credit, well, I can feel my ego starting to build. And then we have contempt for those that we've compared ourselves to. Well, they don't love Christ the way that I love. They're not as committed as I am. They're not as mature as I am. Which leads us to the last step, which is hypocrisy. Because anything that starts with bad theology, I'm bringing a lot to the table. God is also bringing some things. But it's mostly my hard work, my willpower, uh, my sheer determination that has determined my godliness. Anytime we start there, it will always end in hypocrisy because the truth will find you out. You are not as good as you think you are. And so you will end up and I will end up doing the things that we have judged other people for doing. And that's exactly what happens here because look at the next verse, verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, that was chapter 3, and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So Nicodemus really sticks it to these religious leaders. He's like, you guys are mad at them because you think that they don't know the law. But you claim to know the law, but you're ignoring the law because our law says we shouldn't be trying to kill anybody without putting them through a trial. That's why when they arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, they put him through a fake and phony trial in the middle of the night. They don't invite all of the rulers. They don't invite all of the Pharisees. They handpick who got word in the middle of the night that they were going to put Jesus on trial and convict him. Do you even remember that they uh, stirred up people to give false testimony against Jesus? You know why they went through the mockery of that trial? Is because of what Nicodemus pointed out right here. You say that the people don't know the law, but you're ignoring it. You're trying to kill him and arrest him even though... You haven't found him guilty of anything. And so they say to Nicodemus, are you from where he's from? Is that why you're sympathetic to him? Now what was it that divided the people so badly? Verse 37. 
Jump back up to the top. Verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, as I mentioned, the feast that they're celebrating is the Feast of Tabernacles. They're thanking God for the harvest that God has brought throughout the spring and the summer. They're also asking God to do that same thing again. Well, a big part of harvest is rain. They live in a very desert, arid climate. Uh, Rain is not something that they can just depend on. They really needed to pray for rain. And so every morning as a part of this festival, uh, one of the priests would leave the temple. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know that the temple was built on a uh, top of the hill. It sort of feels like it's at the top of Jerusalem. They would leave the temple complex and they would go down to one of their reservoirs. The priest had a golden pitcher and he would dip it into the water get a full cup from one of those reservoirs and then he along with other priests and lots of the crowd would parade back up to the temple complex when they got there there was a temple choir waiting on them and they would sing psalms from psalm 113 to 118 so just imagine this massive ceremony loud, celebrating. God has provided the rain, which has given us the harvest. We're also asking him to provide more rain for the next year, for more harvest for the next year. They're doing all this ceremony, loud choir. And then at the end of one of those songs, after the priest had done his ritual ceremony of dumping the water out uh, there in the temple, there would be a hush that falls over the crowd. And some historians believe it was in that hush that Jesus stands up, it says, And with a loud voice cries out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. So imagine how awkward it would be, and please nobody would do this, if in a moment of silence, one of you just started shouting in the middle of my message. Please do not do that. (laughs) And that was exactly what those priests were feeling when Jesus stood up. And then not only did Jesus have the audacity to break this holy moment of silence with some of his teaching, he actually takes an Old Testament scripture and he makes it about himself. Because it says in verse 37, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now Isaiah chapter 55, if you have a Bible, turn there really quickly. It will also be on the screen behind me. In Isaiah chapter 55, God is writing to those Israelites who have been exiled, who have been scattered away from Israel. And they very, very much want to be able to return home. And look at what God says in chapter 55, verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. So what Jesus is doing is he's not just picking random words. He's reaching back to this invitation to, from God, come to me, anybody who's thirsty. And now Jesus is saying about himself in the middle of a very crowded, very quiet temple, come to me. If you are thirsty, remember, they've just been pouring this water. They just had all this ceremony, the last and greatest day of the feast. And Jesus says, if you're thirsty, if you need rain for some kind of future harvest, your invitation is come to me. That's what we used to think God was saying. And now Jesus is saying, I am saying this. If you want to come to God, you come to me. Anyone who is thirsty. Now, how do I know if I'm thirsty? Well, in Isaiah chapter 55, this promise, this invitation 
has gone to people who have been exiled. They've been separated from something that is good. They've been separated from their homeland. They've been separated from their extended families. They've been separated from the temple of God. They've been separated from the city of God. They've been separated from the traditions that God had given them. And now they're living in Babylon. They're living in Assyria. They've, they've scattered across what we know, now know as, as Europe. They've been separated from good. How do you know if you're thirsty in the way that Jesus is talking about in the temple this day? Do you feel an anguish about being separated from something that is good? If you're single and, and you'd like to be married, you feel like you've been separated from something that is good. If you're married and you'd like to have children, but that's not happening as quickly and as easily as you thought. You've been separated from something that's good. You want to provide for your family, but money's really tight right now. You've been separated from something that's good. You feel a little bit lonely and isolated and you like more relationships around you. You've been separated from something that's good. You've been praying for your children, but for whatever reason, they're just not following in the path that you'd like them to follow. You've been separated from something that's good. And Jesus says to anyone who's thirsty, come to me. Then, what happens when we come to Jesus? Verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So we'll do verse 39 first since it's the interpretation of verse 38. Jesus says the streams of living water that he's talking about is the spirit, the spirit of God. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned throughout the scripture. We believe in one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But the Bible also teaches us about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God, three distinct persons. How that can happen at the same time, I need you to ask somebody else. It's hard to explain. Uh, It's one of those things that it's in the scripture. We believe it. I'm sure some brilliant person can make it, uh, simplify it for us. I am not that brilliant person today. So uh, one God, three distinct persons. The Father we understand, the the Son uh, we understand, but the Holy Spirit is a little bit harder for us to wrap our minds around. When the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit, it talks about him like he is a person. It's a he. Uh, It's not a Jedi force. Uh, It's not an impersonal being invisibly floating around us. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It is a long list, too long for today, uh, of the ministries and roles of the Spirit of God throughout the Scripture. I'll summarize it in two ways. God gives us his Spirit as his personal presence. His nearness to us. And God gives us his spirit to empower us to continue the work of Jesus. Because we all have an assignment today. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, uh, we have work to do. And that work isn't our work. It's just to continue the ministry that Jesus started. Now you think, well, how am I going to do the ministry of Jesus? I'm here and I'm great, but I'm here. And Jesus is like, whoa, way, way up here. Well, the good news is, is the Scripture accounts for that. God has accounted for that. First, he says that Christ is the head of the church. uh, And then all of us are just body parts. So I only have one role to play today. You have a role to play. And God's spirit empowers us, enables us 
to do the ministry of Jesus. It also reminds us of his teaching. So when you are reminded of the good that you should be doing in Jesus' name, whether for your own self or for other people, it is the Holy Spirit who has come to remind you of the teachings of Jesus and then inspire you to do that work and then empower you and enable you to do that work. And Jesus says that the streams of living water coming out of us is the Spirit of God, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. This starts way back in Ezekiel when God gave Ezekiel a prophecy about the Spirit of God. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Isn't that good news? Ezekiel's prophecy went to that scattered people of Israel, disciplined because they had fallen into idolatry. They just could not be faithful to God. And when you read uh, the Old Testament, you just see them in this this cycle of they want to do the right thing, but they just can't do the right thing. And I am familiar with that. But God gives Ezekiel this word, hey, good news. One day when I bring all of you back and I'm instituting my kingdom, it's not going to be based on your try hard anymore. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. My spirit, my very own personal presence is going to empower you to be able to be faithful. Jesus picks up on this idea later on in John, John chapter 16. When he says in verse 6, Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So so Jesus is getting ready to institute Ezekiel chapter 36. His disciples are upset because he's recently told them that he's going away. He'll be crucified, resurrected, ascended into heaven. They've they've been following him every day for three plus years. And, and And he says, now I'm leaving you. But it's good news that I'm leaving you. Because I'm going to be able to send you my spirit. And my spirit will be in you. My spirit will be God's presence with you. My spirit will empower you. That's why Jesus says uh, among his last words to his disciples, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. How how on earth is he able to say that as he's ascending into heaven? Because he sends his spirit. And that's exactly what happens. John chapter 20, uh, after his resurrection, it says that he was with his disciples and he breathes on them and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter two, we see that in a second step when they're praying together and the spirit of God comes in and indwells in, in, in them and it sounds like a mighty rushing wind and they see these miraculous tongues of fire on them and, and, and from moment one, they're able to do ministry that they would not have been able to do otherwise. And God says this ministry and life of the spirit inside of us should come out of us like streams of living water. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves today is, is that happening? Am I an oasis to people? Remember, they're living in a desert, arid climate. Everywhere they look is brown. They desperately need the rain. So any talk about a stream of living water is going to be an oasis. It's going to be a gift. Is that how people talk about you? 
Or are we just contributing more dirt and sand and dust into the world? What's interesting is just a few miles from where Jesus is teaching in the temple is the Dead Sea. You've heard of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea has a river that flows into it, but there's no outflow. And because there's no outflow, everything dies. And you can go and float in it because it has lots of uh, of salt in it. Uh, What's interesting is there was a religious group called the Essenes, and they wanted to be faithful to God. They really wanted to take God's law seriously. So they looked around and said, we're never going to be able to do that living among all of these heathens, all of these mediocre Christians. And so they just moved their clan out to the cliffs looking over the Dead Sea. They formed a little village there eventually called Qumran. And they did in practice what the Dead Sea did in nature. They received all of the ministry from God and gave it to no one. But Jesus says, the ministry and life of the Holy Spirit living in those who believe in Jesus flows out of them. We should be that oasis. But no one has ever described me like that. No one has ever said, you know what I really love about Curtis is he is a stream of living water. I feel watered. I flourish underneath him. I feel like a well-taken-care-of plant. Nobody says that about me. I'm sure they say that about you, but no one says that about me. And and we have to ask ourselves why. Because I think most of us would admit that is not a great description of my spiritual life. Streams of living water coming out of me. Some uh, Bible scholars believe that what Jesus is picturing when he says streams of living water is this little story in Exodus chapter 17. God has rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and they're excited because God is leading them with a a fire pillar in the middle of the night. So they just look out there and there's God's fiery presence right there. In the daytime, uh, God leads them in a cloud. So great. They're having such a great time, but they get out in the wilderness and they're like, hey, there's no water out here. Isn't it amazing how quickly we can go from God is so awesome to he hates me. He's never done one thing good for me. Well, that's what the Israelites do in the garden. They just totally flip on God, even though he's done all these miracles for them. And so they go to Moses, their leader, and they're like, we don't have any water. God hates us. He should have just left us as slaves in Egypt. And so Moses goes to God. He's like, these are your people. They're awful. I don't know what to do. And God says, take your staff and go to that rock. You can picture kind of a big rock, a big outcropping uh, on the side of a mountain there at the base of the mountain. He says, I want you just to give it a good thwack. And so Moses walks over and he slaps the rock and all of a sudden just water comes out of this rock. Out of nowhere. And so some Bible scholars believe that when Jesus says out of them come streams of living water, he's got this mental picture of God providing water out of the rock. Feeding people. Quenching people's thirst. But people should be describing us in this way. And if they're not, we have to ask why. God gave this word to the Israelites right before they were scattered in their exile. Jeremiah chapter 2. And I think this gets to the heart of it. Of why we're not described as streams of living water. God's spirit in us and through us. My people, verse 13, have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. So Jesus didn't just pull that phrase out of nowhere. 
the spring of living water and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This is what got the Israelites in trouble. They had forsaken God, the spring of living water. And they instead said, we're going to dig our own wells, except for their wells were broken. Their water would just leak out. Their sin was idolatry. Turning from God to an idol. Now, now they had specific idols that had personal names. They believed that there were deities behind these idols. But for the Israelites, it was just a transactional relationship. Because those idols had specialties. They believed their God was in charge of everything. Which is so great. Except for when you're in charge of everything, you probably don't care about my little thing. And we've felt that before. If God's got to deal with wars and rulers and presidents and dictators and politicians and children starving around the world. I, I mean, what's he, what's he care? Not that he doesn't care, but does he have time for my infertility? Right? Well, the Israelites battled with that too. But their neighbors, they had a god, a goddess. Her only job was fixing infertility. So you can imagine how tempting that would be to go to something that specialized in quenching your thirst. And so they'd make a sacrifice to Ashtoreth. The the Canaanites also had a God who was just in charge of rain. That was his one job. So if you were a farmer in a desert climate, depending on the rain, imagine how tempting it would be to be like, yeah, I'm going to keep worshiping the one true God, but I'm going to offer a little sacrifice to Baal over here, man, just in case, because it's just his one job. Because idolatry is just a trust issue. Can I trust God with all that he has to do to look out for me? Maybe I can't. So I'm going to trust this one thing to look out for me. I mean, we do the same thing. We have idols, same as the Israelites. Our idols just don't have personal names. They don't have personalities. But we do the same thing with money. Can I trust God to really look after my needs? I don't think that I can. He's got a lot going on. So I'm just going to try to make as much money as possible and then it can meet my needs. Can I trust God to bring the relationships around me that make me feel that I'm a part of a community? I don't think that I can. I'm going to trust something else. But when we trust in those idols, whether they have personal names or just regular everyday things for us, it is forsaking the spring of living water. I read something interesting this week that the Mississippi River is actually trying to change its course. It got together with all of its tributaries and made a decision. No, no but it is it's trying to change its, change its course. And um, this is worrying people because the more flooding that happens, uh, the, the more the Mississippi will change its course. And there are people and cities that have been built up along its banks that really depend on the industry that comes from it. And so uh, engineers are involved and, and people are really working hard to make sure that the Mississippi always goes through those towns, which makes sense because people really depend on it. Well, when Jesus says that out of us flow streams of living water. And remember what he said to Nicodemus when Nicodemus came to him in the middle of the night about the spirit. It's like the wind. You don't know where the ministry comes from. You don't know where the ministry is going. 
So if we are going to have the Holy Spirit's ministry and life flowing out of us, we have to be able to be able to say, hey, wherever the stream is going, that's where I'm going. But we don't want to do that. Right? Too much is riding on all of this. I, I got to stop in the port of comfort. I just do. I got to spend a few nights docking at success. The river's got to go there. I got to pull my boat into happiness. And so we end up making a choice. Am I going to follow the life and ministry of the Holy Spirit? Streams of living water. Or am I going to go to those places? And most of us say, I'm going to go there. And hopefully one day our paths will realign. And I think that's why most of us are not being described as an oasis. Because we're quenching the spirit. As the New Testament will tell us. Jesus says, if you're thirsty. Come to me. And drink. And notice that when Jesus invites the thirsty, he doesn't give them a cup. He gives them a river. Let's pray.